Salutations, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today I am chatting with my very good friend, Stephanie Berg. She received her bachelor's degree in chemistry at the University of Minnesota Morris and is currently a first-year PhD student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she will be focusing her research in chemistry education with Dr. Alina Moon. And her favorite cake flavor is pancakes, which I thought was a really clever answer. Steph, uh, thanks so much for chatting with me today. How have you been? Life has been pretty good. A little bit warm in Lincoln, Nebraska for my Minnesotan taste, but you know, (laughs) beggars can't be choosers. Could be warmer. (laughs) Could be warmer. Uh, So how has the year been so far? I think you started um, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, I started um, my research back in August and I started class about three weeks ago now, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been going pretty well. It's still a lot of work, but it's nothing I hadn't signed up for. And a lot of what I've been doing is just trying to remember time management and trying to evaluate where I should be using my resources. Right. So so what classes are you taking? Uh, so in addition to the couple of colloquium seminars I have to take as a first year grad student, um, I am taking a, I'm retaking inorganic chemistry, but I'm taking it at the graduate level this time. Mm-hmm. And then I am also taking a educational psychology class called human cognition in instruction. Ooh, how has that been? It, okay. So I need to preface this with, I've never taken a formal psych- psychology class in my life. <laughs> um, I've been to many therapists, so I've learned some of that stuff, but um, that is nothing like I would have thought. Um, it has been a lot of fun, though. It it puts a lot of the words, it puts what I've been observing into words and terms so I can better understand it and put meaning to it instead of just observations that I have from seeing something in the classroom. Hmm. Okay, so so what have you been learning in this class? I'm really fascinated. Uh, so this week we've been talking about long-term memory and how to encode it. Hmm. Um, so kind of like how... I don't know. Are you good at memorizing things? I guess that's a question for you. And then I'll elaborate off of that. Oh, man. Uh, uh, my short-term memory is awful. But once I put it into long-term memory, it just stays with me forever. So Yeah. I'm the exact same no. way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm the exact same way. Um, I also get distracted really easily, too, if you can't tell. And if most people can't tell already. Um, so yeah, long-term memory, what's really cool is... Um, yeah, the way that we get things to go into long-term memory is they first have to stay in short-term memory. And it's cool about uh, some of these processes that happen in short-term memory to get them over to long-term memory is we can do these things like method of loci. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's kind of like um, if, if, if anyone ever watches like BBC with Sherlock, uh, the main oh character gosh. is Sherlock. <laughs> yeah, the main character Sherlock has like this mind palace and essentially oh, yeah. you can like memorize like lists of people or things or tasks by having um like a place that you know really really well so we did this activity in class just this week where we were like in our homes it didn't have to be your childhood home but that's what I chose because I'm very familiar with it and Mm -hmm. we did a tour of our house and we put certain people in certain spots with certain items on our grocery list so I think my grocery list was um a loaf of bread lemons milk, 
baked beans, toilet paper, and a cereal. And I remember that from like Tuesday, Tuesday night. And after like 10 or so hours of, was it 10 hours? Yeah, about 10 hours of being at the school. I was like pretty exhausted, but I still remember that list just by using that method of loci. And mm. so what I learned with that method and that encoding process, it's a, well, it's called a mnemonic because it's a device that we can use to help us memorize things mm-hmm. and really learn things. Um, it's, it's a, it takes a lot more energy and effort into memorizing that list because you have to like make up this tour in your mind. But the payoff is that it stays in your mind longer and yeah. you're more likely to actually remember it. That's really fascinating because so I am very familiar with Sherlock's Mind Palace. I have a similar thing, but it's I don't call it the Mind Palace. I call it the archives, right? And so, and I think this is really important to talk about because this is how our students, or this is a method in which our students could be learning and can probably do that more effectively, right? So, I tend to store things. Um, obviously, like our brains prior like filter and prioritize what what is most important. And we'll file it away. But when I file it away, I'm actually literally imagining like this piece of paper being filed away in a cabinet or it being written in a book somewhere. And um, like I even I can visualize what um, the floor looks like. There's like a red thinking chair. I don't know why the chair has to be red, but it's red. If it helps, it helps. And there's like one. Yeah. Right. The one like stand lamp that's like right, like towering over the red thinking chair and then there's this big wooden table there's no chair and I'm just standing um and there's like this little cutout for like my my body to like go into the table and all of the papers that I like like all of the papers that represent my my most current or recent thoughts are like scattered throughout the table and I can see all of them and then when I'm done I you know file them away um, or like if they're books, like, and I have to think of a certain thing, they'll all flip to a page that I've like put it on. Um, and that really helps me at least in terms of like organizing my thoughts and being able to store them away and then, um, take them out again for later. Um, and it's so interesting, right? Like this idea of, of like educate, like psychology and education. Um, it's, it's not something that I used to think about a lot, but now it's like, huh, like I wonder what's going on in my students' brains. I wonder like how, if I understand how they're thinking, maybe I'll, I can improve my teaching that way. I think that's really cool. Yeah, no. And that was just the subject of long-term memory. Like there are so many other things that we're talking about within this class, including, I believe, um, thinking within science or like trying to remember things in science. Oh man. But that's for a later date in the class. And I have not reached that part in my textbook yet because I... (laughs) Well, we're going to have to chat again. So, because I'm, I'm interested, I'm invested. (laughs) Oh Oh, yeah, no, it's a really good book. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, uh, definitely uh, let me know what that book is because I... I am now like very invested. Oh yeah, I'll sign it over to you when I'm done with it. Amazing, amazing. Um, on the topic of teaching, I, I believe you are also teaching uh, a general chemistry lab. How has that been? I love my students so much. Oh my gosh, yeah. I tell them that almost every week. Um, I call them my munchkins too, because right behind their back, I call them my munchkins <laughs> just because they're all very like smart 
they're smart. And although they're most of them are taller than me, I know before you said you don't call your students munchkins because they're so tall. <laughs> um, my students are taller than me, but they're still my munchkins. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going really well. Um, I, I've TA'd before in undergrad, um, and I, I had really enjoyed it then, but I really, um, I find I'm connecting with a lot more students now. Um, I, I don't, I like, pre- I preface every class I start off with, with like, I'm not good with names, so I'm not going to remember names right away. And that's probably, you know, a shortcoming within my short-term memory and long-term memory, because I'm not using my mnemonics to memorize names. But mm-hmm. um, I am like getting to know their personalities, especially when they come to my office hours and we're talking. And I will maybe like prod a joke or something and they'll just like probably prod a joke back at me. And I'm thinking, oh, you're such a smart child. I wish I was nearly as smart as you when I was your age. Mm-hmm. Actually, on the topic of remembering names. So I also am not very good at remembering names, but a system that I have um, developed or I thought or I've found helps work for me is they are assigned lab benches right so this works better for a lab than for a discussion because they probably will switch seats or whatever but um, for a lab they are assigned a bench and so what I do is I draw a layout of the lab and then I write their name in the box associated with that bench Uh, and so that helps me like remember what name goes to like like a general location of the physical lab Mm -hmm. Uh, which so that's kind of like a physical manifestation of the mind palace, which is how I've been like remembering names. And then I like subtly test myself that um, I have to set their, you know, assessments, worksheets, lab reports back before they come in. Um, so I try to like play a little game with myself. Like, I wonder if I can remember without like my cheat sheet where they sit. Uh, if I can do that. So that's how I've been um, learning their names much more quickly. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Just a little, like, just like throwing that out there, if that's something that might help you. Like, <laughs> Yeah. My, my, uh, the lab managers have like given us like, yeah, like the physical layouts of the lab with like a sheet where we can write their names. I had just completely blanked on it within the first day because I had to cover safety and then do a three hour lab. Um, mm-hmm. But I know, and I, I just got back of a bunch of assignments this week. So I know that once I start like grading assignments and I start handing them back, um, this is part of educational psychology, but you were, I'm triggering my uh, visuospatial memory by like figuring out where the lab assignments go. So I associate it with that name and with that person. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really exciting. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, this class is slowly ruining me and <laughs> everything that I do. But in the best way possible. Okay, so uh, that's <laughs> I. I'm sorry. I'm still like on on you saying this class is slowly running you because I I definitely that's that's definitely um this teaching class that I took like a year ago. Uh, I like often analyze like oh like this is metacognition or oh like this is like a backward design or and and I'm just like being more aware of what's happening um i just think that's really fascinating so so uh you've mentioned this earlier um and i had mentioned this earlier your research 
will focus on chemical education research, or CER for short. And uh, we recently had Dr. Carly Schneeblen chat with us a little bit about it on a previous episode. And you had also mentioned to me um, that you have been coding. And, you know, when I think of coding, I think about Python and Java and MATLAB and all that jazz. And so uh, something I wanted to ask was how does... Like, how exactly does coding work for chemical education? Like, what is what exactly is being coded? Um, I'm going to preface this and uh, apologize. I don't even remember how to code in HTML anymore. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with, like, a computer language. Um, so I work in qualitative chemistry education, although I am being trained to work in some quantitative chemistry education as well because, you know, I should be a well-rounded person within my field. Mm-hmm. Um, but so with qualitative qualitative chemistry education often what we do is um one form that's commonly used is we do interviews and so in interviews or even just like written assignments which is the type of work I'm doing right now um I look at responses and I see what things what common things are popping up and then I might assign it to some sort of group and this group might be like people that use this graph instead of this graph or people that say a trend happening in a graph but also reference the graph specifically not just saying the trend Mm. um so it, it all depends on the context of what you're trying to code but you're literally just trying to group different answers into a space so you can see more common trends happening within it so you're looking for certain keywords or phrases that are similar um to an extent yeah and especially within uh so i'm working with a written assignment right now and but especially within like oral interviews um you're going to see a lot of variants so it might not always be the same words but from the probing questions that are used within the interview they might be alluding to the same thing Mm -hmm. so someone who just says the data shows that this is happening uh might actually be meaning like the same might be trying to say the same thing as someone else saying, well, in graph C, we see that this is happening, so I can conclude it from this. Well, they're both using like the same data set. They're just alluding and going about it in a slightly different way. Oh, okay. That's really cool. Uh, I personally like had no idea what coding was. I, I definitely kept hearing this word coding, and I was like, oh, they're probably just using R or something. Um, or like Stata. Oh no! One of my lab mates is though. Oh okay. Uh, I was like, I was like, and then I, I remember like, so I was like, oh yeah, like we did some interviews, and then I coded, and I was like, wait, you, how, do, what? Like, are you talking about transcription? Or as I was like, okay, whatever. I'll just like, like brush it off or whatever. Maybe they're talking about R, or maybe there's something that I don't understand, and and, and so um, thank you for that explanation. I. Uh, I feel like I understand it just a little bit better. Um, it's it's kind of like a rubric yeah. in a way, but you're not assigning a grade. You're just assigning a group that this might fall under. And codes don't always have to be mutually exclusive either. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Um. So one thing I was coding for within this past assignment was co- just analyzing the contents 
of this written conclusive argument that came after. Basically, this was an assignment given to students. And in the first four questions, um, students were asked to look at specific pieces of data. And within the last question, which is the question I was coding for and looking at, students were asked to compile all four arguments from the past questions and compile it into one argument with one kind of conclusive claim. And I was looking at their use of evidence and the reasoning behind why they're using their evidence and how it helps support their claim. But unfortunately, things are not nearly as clear cut as we think sometimes. And my idea of what counts as evidence will not be the same as what someone else considers evidence. Um, so obviously when making a code, I have to specify like, why I'm coding something that way or what things I'm looking for. But especially like when I'm coding, I also will specifically highlight the parts that I think might show that as evidence. And I'll put it into like a Excel spreadsheet so I can keep track of that. And I can compare it to others when I'm coming back to it. But something that counts as evidence for me might also kind of count as reasoning in some ways. By we actually talked about this earlier when I was asking you questions about do you think that by just extracting a trend from a graph, does that count as evidence? And beforehand, um, you had told me, no, that's correlation does not equals causation. That could lead to a lot of arguments like that. But in a way, like in some ways, I can see it being used as evidence within an argument. If you have like no data points that you can pull from that graph because like the units weren't very obvious or something like that, or there weren't any units at all. Um, so I counted that as evidence, but in some ways it can also be reasoning. So why, like, why should I use this piece of evidence? Well, this evidence supports what we're looking for in the first place. So what thing will make this reaction go faster? Uh, well, using component X makes this go faster. And we can see that in this graph. And we you look at this graph because this graph shows um, the speed of the reaction picking up when we add more X to it. Okay. Yeah. I also remember this conversation. I was like, the, uh, yeah. So that's really interesting. Oh man, this is all really cool stuff actually. And, and chem chemistry education is extremely interesting to me. So, uh, I have to ask, um, how did you happen upon this field? Like, was it like, oh, yeah, like, I really love education and I want to make it better. And that's how I came to the field. Or was it more of like a, like, what, what was happening there? Um, the way I described it last Friday when um, I was talking to a visiting speaker, Dr. Holm. Hi, Dr. Holm. I'm sorry I asked if you're older than LEDs. That was very inappropriate of me at the time. Um, <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but I'm never going to live that down and I'm going to own up to that. Um, <laughs> the way I described it is I was kind of tricked into getting into chem ed and I don't mean that in like a like a maliciously tricked I just thought I was going into a regular um chemistry education lab or no just a regular chemistry lab and I thought oh we are I, I signed up on a project to make ethanol out of co coffee grounds and I was like as a general chemistry student I was like OMG this is so cool and uh, <laughs> I Upon spending more time in the lab, I figured out um, that although, like, I what well, I am doing research, like, I wasn't doing, like, I wasn't working with MOFs or I wasn't working um, to look at, like, some anti-cancer treatments and how they react in mice. And I, d I didn't mind it. I had a lot of fun doing what I did with Dr. Fisher that year 
or Dr. Abby Fisher. Um, she really allowed me to explore with what I wanted to do with creating a lab. And basically, I was given a lab that I had done in Gen Chem. And I was just kind of given free reign to make it more interesting and a little bit more difficult for students, but difficult in the way that they would just have to think more critically about some of the things that were happening in the lab. Not difficult as in like, oh, these equations are impossible to know because I never took this math class. Right. So like challenging, more challenging. Yeah. Perhaps intellectually stimulating. (laughs) Yeah, more engaging. Yeah. Okay. That's, I like that word, more engaging. That's exciting. So what, um, what did you end up design? Like what lab did you end up designing? Um, so I was given a heat of fusion lab for melting ice in like a styrofoam cup. And I feel like that's a pretty typical lab that most people do. Um, and at one point I think Abby had mentioned like, Oh, why don't you like, maybe we could like add Gatorade and see what happens. And I was just like, no, Abby, what if we kind of like mimic this after Minnesota Department of Transportation's way of methods of melting ice in the winter? Because then you could relate it to real life. And I thought it worked out pretty well. And it did. And I tested it out on students who were willing to volunteer. And I was really proud of what I made, actually. Like it really mimics some real life conditions. And I actually learned a lot more about what the Department of Transportation does in the state of Minnesota. That's really cool. So what did you learn? <laughs> um, so I learned the difference between a de-icer and an anti-icer. Hmm. I also learned that we don't just put salt on roads. And I learned like why we can't just dump salt on roads either. Because although it would be nice to dump salt on roads to quote unquote melt ice, um, it's actually like really not that great for the environment either. Mm. And it's also just not cheap because it can bounce off too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is the difference between a de-icer and an anti-icer? All right. So I haven't looked at this for like three years, but I believe a de-icer gets rid of ice that is already on a surface. So like putting salt down Mm -hmm. or putting like some sort of um, carbohydrate mix with salt. Um, And the carbohydrate just helps it stick to the surface more than just putting like uh, pellets of salt onto the ground. And an anti-icer prevents ice from forming onto a surface and i don't know what goes into an anti-icer but i yeah i just don't know i tried asking at one point this one company and they said um we'd love to help you but it's a patented recipe so you can't know oh okay i i had i had an inkling that that was what it was but i i wanted to make sure that i wasn't completely wrong so thank you for confirming my my hunch oh man that's really cool that's amazing Okay, so um, so what what encouraged you to want to make the lab mimic uh, real life situations? That is a great question, and I was talking about it today with some coworkers. Hmm. Um, so one, I should say that lab learning in the lab and learning in a lecture are very different, and there's often this huge disconnect between them. And that is something I think that needs to be focused on more within chemistry education. Yeah. But um, for the time being, like there, there can only be so much work put into either stage. Right. Um, but I think an easy way to make chemistry more interesting is by pulling out everyday phenomena mm-hmm. and by making it 
apply to someone's everyday life, not only are you making it more interesting and you're actually showing them the everyday chemistry that does go on around us, but you're also making it more accessible Mm -hmm. and you're also making it cheaper usually too. So like I really liked making my lab because effectively you don't need to have a huge budget to melt ice. All you really (laughs) need are some ice cubes and some salt, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like, it's it's a really funny thing, but it's also you don't need a huge budget to learn about chemistry. And chemistry, like you don't need like a really expensive instrument to show your students about Beer's Law. Or well, you might need you might need that, but like you don't <laughs> need super expensive things to show your students about what's going on in chemistry. Okay. And by showing them everyday phenomena, you're making chemistry way less abstract than it is mm-hmm. because chemistry at its core right now with the way that we're teaching it sometimes it's just so abstract and out there that of course we're not going to apply it to our everyday lives so by like taking things out of our everyday life like melting ice or like uh like the purple uh oh no like the red cabbage experiments that you can do with ph by like taking those things out of everyday life and showing them like oh hey you probably have household products that do some pretty cool chemistry by showing mm-hmm. people like what's going on, they can like bring more of their knowledge in the classroom to the lab or even just to their everyday life. Right. One of the things that I and I I am really excited about this, but I also am like, I need to really sit down and and, and think about it if I really want this to be a thing. But one of like this extremely just out there ideas that I had for a lab was, well, you know, as be elective for seniors, um, is the chemistry of coffee and tea. Why? Because a very large population of your undergraduates and your graduate students drink coffee or tea. And I think um, flavonoid chemistry is so fascinating and is something that like if you just add, for example, milk, you change the texture, you change the the acidity, um, you change the flavor profile, and like what we're tasting is is the chemicals are responsible for for the flavors. And so, what exactly is happening there? Um, and I think that'd be really cool to do, like yeah. for a for a more advanced lab, of course. But but you know, like something that is so relatable so very intimately related to these students lives I think would be like that'd be a really I would want to take that lab uh so you know I think that's really cool like having yeah having something that relates to oh this is like relevant this is something that I do every day uh like well okay so I I can't say that I melt ice every day because I'm in San Diego but yeah you know like yeah but for like students in rural Minnesota, right. like we have to deal with ice right. within the winters. You know, although cl- climate change is happening, mm-hmm. with the polar vortex happening, we still get a lot of ice. Right, right. Well, and even like no matter your background, like you're gonna have to walk on ice at some point mm-hmm. out at the school. So right, um, I think a similar like situation that I have in my hometown. So I lived in Santa Clarita um, and that is in the Chaparral. And the Chaparral is very arid and very dry, but it also has a lot of brush. And so what will happen is that we have fires. 
And that's natural. That's part of the ecosystem. It's like, you know, like we have a lot of dead brush, the fire goes through um, and cleans out all the brush, the ash, it fertilizes the soil, and then it's immediately followed by a rainy season. And then we have these beautiful lush mountains. And so um, something that actually needs to be thought about is because the fires have become more and more, um, well, perhaps I should backtrack and say that there's been much more construction, right? So more and more residential areas uh, in the chaparral where fires are naturally occurring. So, um, you know, sometimes these fires come really close to homes and we use um, uh, fire retardants um, on, on, you know, the mountains and whatnot. And so, um, one, it's like, okay, well, how do we use these fire retardants to control the fires, not necessarily like completely prevent them because it's a natural, it's a natural thing. It needs to happen, but prevent it or it, sorry, control it such that it doesn't affect the homes, but not so much to the fact that we completely quell them because we definitely need the fires to do its thing. Um, but also uh, in such a way that it doesn't, it doesn't harm the soil. And so that's another thing. So it's just like, oh, like this could be another thing. Like what is the chemical composition of these fire retardants? And why, like what about it makes it as potent, like as potent as it would? And how would you change this to make it more potent or less potent? Um, I'm not actually sure if potent is the correct terminology, uh, says the uh, pharmacological chemist, but uh, that is what I was thinking. So you're all good. I just studied plants for a second. So that's cool. Uh, I, I do remember you telling me that you have a very cool tattoo um, for a particular reason. So could you tell me uh, about this tattoo? And why it's significant? Okay. Um, so about a little bit over a year ago, I got into a research experience for undergraduates through the NSF. And I got to study at NDSU under James, uh, Dr. James Niachwaya. And I uh, had money for the first time in a hot minute. <laughs> and I had been wanting a tattoo and I had been thinking about it for a bit. So I was more than okay. And I had done my research. So I found a tattoo artist and I told him I wanted a hibiscus on my body mm -hmm. and I would prefer to have it on my arm as like a quarter sleeve tattoo. Mm -hmm. And he said, can do what else would you like with that? And I said, it cannot look beachy or tropical because that is not the vibe I am going for. <laughs> and um, I really like botan. I really like botanical stretch sketches mm -hmm. too. So I wanted to like let him know like I really like black and gray tattoos, and I want a tattoo that um, looks kind of like a botanical sketch in a way, mm -hmm. um, and doesn't like look like I took a trip to Hawaii at some point in my life because I <laughs> just I didn't like the I didn't like the aesthetic of those, and I didn't think they would look good in my body. Mm -hmm. So. The reason I had done that is I, at that point, I had been studying anthocyanins for a bit, and I was really interested in seeing if I could put them into a lab. And unfortunately, like even a few months after that, I figured out um, it was very hard to do. And I, given the time and resources that I had, I was unable to make it into a lab. 
Um, and I, I at first kind of saw that as a failure, but I, a lot of my professors had pointed out, hey, it's not a failure. Um, you're, you're an undergraduate student it's okay that you don't do things perfectly the first time. And like, I did find some alternative uses that like anthocyanins would be really great for. But so uh, I specifically was looking at anthocyanins and I was looking at anthocyanins within this certain subspecies of hibiscus that grew on my campus. And I was harvesting those flowers the best that I could. <laughs> and I uh, would basically make like a boozy tea out of them. <laughs> and I tried to use them as an indicator in a strong acid, strong base titration. Mm-hmm. A lot of the literature I had looked at said that it was definitely possible. Mm-hmm. And they were suggesting that it would be an appropriate alternative for like a indicator such as like phenolphthalein or methyl orange, I think. Um, it just depended on the pH range. And mm-hmm. I concluded from my fairly relatively brief compared to most people's research research um time periods that it was not an appropriate indicator but it would make for a great indicator paper and it shows a range that a ph might be in but it does not mm-hmm. conclusively show an actual like when an ending point of a titration should take place oh i see well that's really fascinating so is this is this your favorite molecule? It is my favorite molecule. It's also one of my most hated molecules, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's a love-hate relationship. Yeah. Well, I, I love it. It's, it's just such a – I really don't like to use this word all the time because I feel like I, I sound like a science bro or something. <laughs> but, like, it's such a beautiful molecule. And nature has constructed just these beautiful structures that have these amazing properties and I wanted to use that for like my benefit within a with for within a lab. And unfortunately, like the properties just didn't transfer over that well. And they would have transferred over for like other aspects that weren't strong acid, strong base titrations. But it's still a really beautiful molecule. Like it's it's a flavonoid, mm-hmm. like you talked about before. So it's a little bit um, more complicated than a lot of like base knowledge chemistry. But it's 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 just it's so cool it it dissolves in so many things you can make crystals out of them nice i accidentally did that one time and it <laughs> really cool and I, I still have pictures of them somewhere <laughs> if you ever want them nice but like they're just these amazing molecules and we kind of just take them for granted because we see them in plant matter all the time and we're like yeah those are just anthocyanins they make like the blue red and pink colors in our plant matter but like there are these amazing molecules that change color just by like putting them in different pHs. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, like you can change how vibrant something is with um you can change how you can change something's vibrancy with its anthocyanins by just like having a co-pigment in there so you can get some pi pi bond stacking and co-pigmentation going on overall. It's just it's a really amazing molecule and we are so behind nature in chemistry that I, I just have so much more respect for, for nature sometimes than I do for chemistry as a whole. But I still love chemistry. I just also really love nature. That's completely fine. I, I actually, um, when I was applying for my undergrad, uh, I was a bit disappointed when I found out that the university I decided to go to didn't have um, like a botany minor which is a really interesting thing because I I really I was so fast I'm so fascinated by botany and and plants and you know the 
the chemicals within these plants and the chemicals that they produce. It's so fascinating. And I am definitely like a strong proponent for using the word beautiful to describe the things that nature and chemistry do. Like I, I'm an inorganic chemist. The colors that my molecules make are gorgeous and I am unashamed of using that. Um, And so yeah, like definitely use beautiful because I think um, I think that the things that nature does, the things that chemistry is capable of doing, is spectacular and phenomenal and amazing. And so, you do you. Um, but uh, we are uh, getting close to the end of our chat. Um, to the listeners at home, thank you so much for tuning in. If you would like to keep up with Steph's adventures, you can follow her on Twitter at Snorkels. Um, that's S-S-N-O-R-K-E-L-S. That's right. There are two S's at the start of her handle there. Um, you should definitely follow her um, because Twitter was certainly the means by which she and I became friends. Uh, and if you would like to take part in the hype and aren't already doing so, uh, feel free to follow me at Chemistry Cake. And uh, the podcast is finally on Instagram, so you can follow the podcast at Chemistry Cake Online. Um, and that's where I'll be posting updates about the podcast, so definitely go follow. Uh, This is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to keep on edifying your village. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off.